This is the third day of this January 2021 Rohatsu seven-day online session. And uh, we finished yesterday with a very short uh, biography of uh, Zen Master Hakuen uh, from uh, the book Wild Ivy, translated by Norman Waddell. Um, I ran across in uh, another book uh, by uh, another book about Hakuen, translated by Norman Waddell. I found a, just a short, short uh, sketch uh, of Hakuen in, in his own words of his path, and I thought I would just to re- as as a way of reviewing. It's one paragraph, a way of reviewing. Uh, read that because it's in his own words. Everything else yesterday, or most everything, was uh, summarized by uh, the translator. This book, by the way, is, uh, now is The Essential Teachings of Zen Master Hakuen. Here, here, here are Hakuen's words. I left home to become a Buddhist monk when I was 14. I became discouraged before even a year was out. My head had been shaved smooth. I wore a black robe, but I hadn't seen any sign of the Dharma's marvelous working. I happened to hear that the Lotus Sutra was the king of all sutras the Buddha had preached. It was supposed to contain the essential meaning of all the Buddhas. I got hold of a copy and read it through, but when I had finished, I closed it with a heavy sigh. This, I told myself, is nothing but a collection of simple tales about cause and effect. True, mention is made of there being only one absolute vehicle and of the changeless, unconditioned tranquility of all dharmas. But on the whole, it is what Lin Chi, that's Rinzai, dismissed as mere verbal prescriptions for relieving the world's ills. I'm not going to find what I'm looking for here. And then he relates how much later, uh, many years later, when he was 41, he had his final enlightenment experience uh, while uh, reading the Lotus Sutra. He went back to it and read it in a whole different way. Now, before we uh, go on to uh, Hakuin's actual teachings, uh, well, this is a kind of a teaching. Uh, This is is a chapter in this same book, The Essential Teachings of Zen Master Hakuin, chapter called Authentic Zen. And in it he, in his own vivid, colorful, magnificently eloquent way, um, lays out the chronology of this uh, this mind-to-mind transmission, starting with the Buddha. Here's what he writes. When a son of the Shakya clan, known later as the Golden Sage, 
went into the fastness of the snowy mountains long ago to begin his first retreat, he cradled secretly in his arms an ancient stringless lute. You could say uh, he, he used this lute uh, to play the music of the spheres. <clears throat> he strummed it with blind devotion for over six years, that's the, his six uh, years of severe asceticism, until one morning he saw a beam of light shining down from a bad star, <laughs> why bad, I don't know, and was startled out of his senses. The lute, strings and all, shattered into a million pieces. In other words, going beyond music, beyond sound, beyond the distinction between sound and silence, seeing beyond all duality. Presently, strange sounds began to issue from the surrounding heavens. Marvelous tones rose from the bowels of the earth. From that moment, he found that whenever he so much as moved a finger, sounds came forth that wrought successions of wondrous events, enlightening living beings of every kind. It began in the Deer Park. It's uh, uh, where he gave his first four, his first, his, uh, first discourse, uh, the Four Noble Truths. It began in Deer Park, where he strummed an old four-strutted instrument from which issued twelve elegant tones, twelve uh, uh, twelve-fold link of dependent co-arising, <clears throat> twelve-fold chain of dependent co-arising. In mid-career at Vulture Peak, he articulated the perfectly rounded notes of the one vehicle. A Vulture Peak is, tradition has it, is where he uh, conferred the Dharma. He named uh, Maha Kashapa as his Dharma heir. He held up a flower and Maha Kashapa alone smiled and he said, you've got it. You've got my, you're my successor. At the end, he entered the grove of cranes, and from there the sad strains of his final song were heard. Um, this, uh, I'm looking at a footnote. This final song uh, is the, what the Buddha is said to have taught before entering Nirvana, before his, his death. His repertoire reached a total of 5,040 scrolls of marvelously wrought music. The sutras, of course. A person appeared who understood. He could grasp these notes at the touch of a single string. He was known as Great Turtle. This is uh, Mahakashapa again. When his carapace fractured, a sudden blossom burst of cracks and fissures, the melody was taken up on the strings of 28 mighty instruments. These are the 28 Indian ancestors who followed uh, the Buddha. 
the uh, sudden blossom burst of cracks and fissures, of course, is the, the great overturning of delusion with, with his Mahakashapa's enlightenment. The last of them, that is the last of these Indian ancestors, was a divine, blue-eyed virtuoso, virtuoso with a purple beard. How wonderful he was! With one sweep of the lion strings, he swallowed up the voices of all the six schools. Eight times the phoenix strings sang out. Eight times the divine lute passed in secret transmission. The source of it all was this man from the land of South India who was born the son of a king. Um, footnote here. I think I covered all the footnotes. Uh, I mean, all these points that are in the footnote. <clears throat> Just to go back here, uh, where he said, with one one sweep of the lion strings, he swallowed up the voices of all the six schools. In other words, all the six schools of Buddhism distilled into bodhidharmas facing the wall for nine years. When he reached the forested peaks of the bear's ears, he amused himself playing on a holeless iron flute. The sounds were magnificent. Here's here again is where he's in the, uh, in the cave doing zazen. The sounds were magnificent, but he found they were unable to rend people to their deepest souls. So he parceled out his own skin, flesh, bone, and marrow instead. This is, uh, many of you know this, this was the story of Bodhidharma's transmitting the Dharma uh, to his four disciples. Um, he asked each of them to express his or her attainment. And uh, to the first one, he said, you have my skin. To the next one, he said, you have my flesh. To the third one, you have my bones. And to Wei Ke, who became his successor, he said, you have my marrow. He continues in this imaginative rendering of uh, our lineage. Seven steps after him, the transmission stumbled and a blind, lifeless old nag was loosed upon the world. Here, this is an allusion to Ma Zhu. Um, the, the, the name is literally Horse Patriarch. Um, uh, Wei Nung, the, the, the sixth patriarch, had <clears throat> uh, predicted that... Uh, no, uh, Prajnatara had predicted. Prajnatara was one of the, one of our ancestors, and of course, he's a woman. Uh, had predicted that 
uh, Nanue would produce a spirited young horse who would trample the world into dust. And that, and that was Mazu, who is reported to have had 139 enlightened disciples. A blind, lifeless old nag was loosed upon the world. This is very much the uh, the rich uh, style of Zen of um, what Roshi Kapo used to describe as praising by slander, um, of saying saying something that, on the face of it, appears critical or disparaging, but really is the and from a Zen perspective is a great tribute a blind lifeless old nag blind to uh, discrimination to to um, blind to false sight uh, lifeless because he had died the great death this old nag, Mazu, who was loosed upon the world. He reared up on his hind legs, pawing the air in high spirits. With his 360 joints lathered up, throwing deadly milk wildly in all directions and showers of blood and sweat steaming violently up through his 84,000 pores, he stomped the triliocosmic universe into dust. He smashed the vaults of heaven into atoms with deafening nays, striking such panic into millions of Mount Sumerus. They toppled over each other, trying to escape, and he ravaged every land in the six directions, leaving them strewn behind in tiny pieces. You can't beat Hakuan. This, la this language of annihilation, of destruction, uh, of course, is pointing to um, what is beyond everything we can imagine, everything we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think about. It's beyond the world of phenomena. It's seeing that this world of appearances, of form, is without any real substance to it. Destroying it in that sense, seeing as it as never having been born in the first place, never having had any self-substance to it. Eighty four thousand pores is just a became a kind of a conventional way of uh, referring to the the human body the and the three hundred and sixty joints um, these Hakuan continues these sounds carried to the foot of Mount Nanshuan, where a divine celestial drum took up the beat of its own accord. Changsha and Zhao Zhou, that's Joshu, fell into harmony with the mysterious direct pointing and broke into powerful personal renditions 
of the secret melody. It reached an old ferryman at the Thai Ford, who liked to pass the time tapping away on the sides of his boat. He rapped out rough, barbaric tunes that drowned out the notes of more graceful singers. Uh, this here he's referring to uh, Yantao or Ganto. Remember from uh, yesterday, the day before, uh, Ganto, uh, Ganto's uh, violent death at the hands of bandits and uh, his tremendous cry as he was being slain uh, at first was a, was a great uh, source of doubt to the young, immature Hakuin, and later he came to appreciate it. goes on, the sternest, most trenchant notes that came from the holeless flute reached the abbot's chambers at the Kuang Tai Yuan in Kuangnan province, where a poisoned drum was slung upside down. From that drum emerged sounds that drained men's souls and burst men's livers, littering the landscape with the bodies of over eighty men and striking who knows how many others deaf and mute. Xiao Tsung restrung the lute. These are uh, various great masters. Restrung the lute and carried it up into the fastnesses of Mount Tung. Chung Shen clasped it to his bosom and entered Mount Shuido, that's uh, Secho, who's uh, has, commentary, has commentaries in the Blue Cliff record. From these pinnacles he emanated sounds that shook the whole world. Roarings of an iron lion were heard over the lands west of the river. They would have killed the spirit in a wooden man. Bayings of a straw dog filled the skies over Lake Tzu. They would have started hard sweat on the flanks of a clay ox. Another true man emerged. He was a son of the Tung family of blah, 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 known as Tungshan, the old man of the Eastern Mountain. This is what he was one of the co-founders of the Soto school. He devoted himself as a young monk to austere religious discipline at Broken Head Peak. Later, he concealed his presence inside a clump of white cloud. One morning, he entered a rice-hulling shed, tucked up his hemp robe, and made a single circumambulation of the millstone. This is referring to uh, the, the sixth patriarch, Wei Nung, who, uh, when he went to the temple of the fifth patriarch, he was consigned to the rice pounding area, uh, the, the fifth patriarch uh, reportedly saw that he was a, a great vessel of the Dharma, but uh, wanted to test him and maybe spare him the envy of the other monks as a newcomer, a 21-year-old newcomer, by sending him off to the rice pounding area. 
scholars say that that uh, Zen as we know it uh, really it was it was Wei Nung Wei Nung who's 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 who stamped it as we know it now. It was different before Wenung. The thunder from this voiceless cloth drum rolled angrily out, snarling and snapping, and filled the world with far-reaching reverberations. You would have thought the thunder god himself had been hired to pound a poison drum. It rendered three Buddhas utterly senseless, and it drained all the courage from a quiet man. Uh, this is; these are allusions to other great masters. A little more here. Da Wei chanted. His voice reached up and down the coasts, coasts of Hengyang. Da Wei, I mentioned, I think on day one of the Sishin, Da Wei was the uh, predecessor, the Chinese predecessor of Hakuen, who is also credited at that time of having reformed uh, the koan system and and uh, the, the sect of Linchi, the school of Linchi. I think I'm going to stop here. It goes on. He just is... Um, you can imagine the, the inspiration he felt to to write this kind of way. Now... Uh, <clears throat> Turning to the uh, the introduction, uh, to just give a little more that I would have said, would have written, would have read yesterday had there been more time. Uh, a little bit more about Hakuen in his uh, in his later years. It says Hakuen was not always the flint-eyed teacher striking terror into the hearts of Zen students. He was also a man of great warmth and kindness and humor who shared the life of his fellow villagers and was deeply sympathetic to their needs. When he was not engaged in training his regular students, he was trying to reach out through writing and painting to educate the farmers, fishermen, and others of his native region and bring them closer to the truth of the Dharma. Hakuin's biographical records show that the pace of his teaching activity actually picked up over the final 25 years of his life. He lectured regularly at his home temple and others in the area. Uh, Invitations came from other temples and lay groups around the country. 
and uh, I flagged uh, here interesting more more filling out Hakuin's character here uh, after all this writing and there's just volumes of his writing um, as he was in advanced age it says here he called out in a loud voice for someone to bring him fire uh, this is this is a, a particular manuscript um, that he had finished and he apparently intended to burn uh, we were greatly concerned for the safety of the manuscript but Jun and Ko uh, this is the words of some of it, uh, these are in the words of some of his disciples and Jun and Ko were two of them had the presence of mind to roll it up quickly and hide it in one of their robes we brought the matter up again several times after that when the chance presented itself but now he just ignored us completely. Since then, three years have passed. And then these, his disciples made a strong, strong case for having his uh, manuscripts and letters, and a lot of these are letters, having them published, which he was dead set against. He heard them out, and then he said, I'm well aware of all that you have said, but these Dharma words you keep referring to are just a lot of foolish twaddle. I spoke them without thinking on the spur of the moment. I was still half asleep. It contains lapses of memory, slips of the tongue. I can't allow something like that to be printed. People would just laugh at it. Maybe I can comply with your request later after some wise and learned scholar has looked it over and corrected it. So then the, those last words gave encouragement to these disciples. And uh, they just took it upon themselves behind his back to have these manuscripts published in the capital. And then when they informed him that they were being published, it says here, he was aghast. For several days, he seemed to be in a state of shock. Then he told us he wanted someone to leave immediately for Kyoto to have the printing stopped. After consulting among ourselves, we went to him and said, it would take days to reach Kyoto. And even when we got there, it is a great metropolis. There's said to be over 100,000 houses. How could we possibly find the publisher and deliver your message? And then Hakuin sighed mournfully. How regrettable. A fool mistake I made several years ago when we were staying at Lehman Gentaku's house. I just wanted to put a stop to his whining. Now here I am biting my navel. Ah! It is those Dharma talks of mine that will make men know me and those same Dharma talks that will make them condemn me. And now, after these uh, um, kind of prefatory 
sections of the book. I'll dive into, with what time we have left, into um, the first of my selections of his teachings. And uh, this is from a... (laughs) A, uh, a chapter in the book uh, that that uh, Hakuin titled Licking Up Shi Kong's Fox Slobber. <laughs> I was blown by the winds of karma to this broken down old temple at the beginning of the Kyoho era, uh, so um, around 1720. I have remained here without disciples for the past 20 years. Remember, uh, for, there were many years where he was just in this small temple, Shoinji, uh, with, uh, I think we said yesterday, 20, just 20 monks. I've remained here without disciples for the past 20 years. In that time, I have been visited by students from all corners of the land, asking me to give them talks and lectures. Some of them brought me rosters bearing names of hundreds of students. Others submitted their requests in elaborate compositions that were 20 or 30 lines long. Altogether, this must have happened at least 30 times. I can't tell you how it has interfered with my sleep. A few of the students burned with genuine zeal and determination. They made the rounds of Zen teachers, asking them to intercede with me on their behalf. They went to lay followers complaining of my intransigence, that is, of not wanting to take more students. I saw how strongly they were committed to achieving their goal. I wanted to do what I could to respond to their needs. But my temple is extremely poor. The kitchen shelves are bare. From the far north of the country to the far south, I don't suppose a single soul could be unaware of the poverty here at Shouinji. At the same time, he writes, I'm deeply concerned about the sharp decline in Buddhist practice in recent years and the sad decay of the Dharma. The young generation of monks are a pack of misfits, irresponsible and ungovernable rascals. When they first come to me, I can't help loving them for their quiet, unassuming manner. My head bows before their sincere devotion and firm resolve. I think they are genuine monks determined to break through to enlightenment. Their thoughts are fixed firmly on the great matter of birth and death. But but before even a month is up, they turn from the exemplary norms and customs of the past as they would from dirt. The time-honored temple regulations mean no more to them than lumps of dry mud. They band together in groups and run roughshod through the temple, roaming the garden and corridors, shouting out to one another in loud voices, loitering in passageways, singing and humming. 
They pay no attention to what their superiors tell them. Senior priests and temple masters are powerless to restrain them. I, uh, I, I, I pick this out as, as more, uh, uh, more, an, ac- an account to give more texture and more humanity uh, to these these monasteries, these temples that we we uh, so often read about, but without such uh, vivid and detailed descriptions and uh, realistic. This is these this kind of a, these words of Hakuin provide, uh, even though he often exaggerates. Uh, but they do provide uh, a, 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 a more realistic uh, picture of the way things really were. It's so easy for us to idealize things of the past. Ah, ancient China, ancient Japan, ancient Korea. Ah, these monks, these monasteries full of all these great vessels of the Dharma, striving day and night. We know from other sources that in, in China, for sure, these big monasteries uh, were full of all kinds of people who, uh, young men who went there to avoid paying taxes, uh, who went there to escape the draft, uh, and who were taken by their parents when they were kids. Uh, the parents couldn't afford to raise them. And so you had quite uh, a motley crew of people of all different de- levels of aspiration, and Hakuin uh, makes brings this home very colorfully. For example, he never shies away from details. They cut the bucket rope at the wall. They lift the temple bell from its moorings and turn it upside down. They push over the big temple drum. Whenever they get the chance, they sneak out the front gate. They slink furtively back in at night through openings they have burrowed in the temple wall. <laughs> I, I have to stop. I was, uh, I was at, a, at a temple briefly in Japan, a Rinzai temple, where it was a very, it's a woe-begone, very sad scene. There were only in this quite large monastery. There were only about four or five monks. And uh, the the head monk there took some time for over the course of a few days to tell me what was going on. He, he uh, told me of how two of those monks, they would go, quote, go over the monastery wall at night and then come back in uh, drunk as skunks. And uh, and then he went on to tell me how he dealt with them, which involved. Uh, he said it the first first time they they did it and they got caught. It was ten blows. Uh, second time it was twenty blows. Third time it was thirty blows, and so forth. He said this with uh, quite a bit of pride. That's sure to take care of alcoholics. Just keep beating them.
They gather in front of the main hall, capering about and singing shameless tunes they pick up in town. Uh, here, let me, let me make, uh, make another point. Um, it, it, is, it is so distracting and even annoying when people at a, a training temple or center like ours uh, sing out loud. Thanks. If you if you have to have songs running running through your mind, yeah, that can't be helped. But keep them to yourself. They swarm over the hill in back of the temple like ants, disturbing others with their wild clapping and horsing around. They prop sharp sickles up in dark corridors where the unsuspecting will walk into them. They stack big water jars in passageways where people will be sure to knock them over. I hope this isn't giving anyone any ideas about pranks they can pull. They crack the floor planks over the privy, the latrine, so that when men squat on them, they will tumble into the pit filth. They plague the kitchen monks by dousing the firewood with water so it can't be used to light the ovens in the morning. They make the rounds of the local tea houses and wine shops, gleefully abandoning themselves to base amusements. Now, I gotta say, this strains credibility. Uh, unless he's, unless he's compiling incidents that have happened over centuries of time that have been passed down in the temple lore, uh, this strains credibility. And then he just says, while there could be a thousand people inside the temple devoting themselves to their training with untiring zeal, because they do not venture outside the gates for the entire retreat, no one knows of their illustrious achievements. The rowdy miscreants haunting the town streets engrossed in these unsavory pastimes may be no more than two or three in number, but since it all takes place in broad daylight for everyone to see, their sins become known to all. Ah, because of the mindless and irresponsible actions of a handful of monks, tens of thousands of their fellows must share their notoriety. Jades are cast into the furnace along with ordinary stones. Gold and steel are melted into one common lump. Buddhist monks have come to be despised by good laymen and laywomen. Now they are as welcome as a shit-covered pig or a mangy dog with running sores. People in the streets condemn them. Even the masterless samurai talk of their flagrant misdeeds. So you can see if even a quarter of this is was true, uh, you can see how, what, a, what a need there was in in these late 17, 1700s uh, for a reformer of the, uh, the profound uh, realization of Hakuen, a, a reformer to 
take matters in hand and and uh, straighten things out there. He uh, acknowledges that um, they could do some good work. Here, recently, seven or eight of my trusted disciples, men with whom I have lived and practiced, combined their efforts in order to get the temple ready for this lecture meeting, the big, a big convocation that they needed to do a lot to get it ready. They hauled earth, cleared away rubble and stones, they drew water, got the vegetable gardens up to pitch. They endured cold and hunger, experienced full shares of pain and suffering. They started at dawn, their robes wet with dew. The stars were out when they returned. They worked on the monks' quarters, the well, the cooking ovens, the privy and bathhouse. Ten thousand hardships, untold difficulties. Why, you broke into a sweat just watching them. Your eyes would swim just hearing about their deeds. And when you think that monks at any other training hall in the land do the same thing, a lecture meeting is certainly nothing to be undertaken lightly. But then, when all these preparations have been made, these misfits, who have not even dirtied their hands, descend upon us, stirring up all kinds of trouble and totally disrupting the meeting. What on earth goes on in the minds of such men? I have always loathed the monks of their type. They are tiger fodder, no doubt about it. I hope one tears them into tiny shreds. <laughs> For those of you who think, oh my Lord, how can a Zen, deeply enlightened Zen master speak in such violent terms? Aren't we supposed to be peace-loving people in the Dharma? I hope one tears them into tiny shreds. The pernicious thieves, even if you killed off seven or eight of them every day, you would still remain totally blameless. Why are we so infested with them? Because the ancestral gardens have been neglected, that is, the, the teaching. They have run to seed. The verdant Dharma foliage has withered and only a wasteland remains. Nowadays you find worthy senior priests, monks, you find worthy senior monks, fully qualified Zen teachers, who are reluctant to take on the responsibility of training a large group of students because it means they will have to deal with these troublemakers. I have to say, if we had even one such person in training, I'd, be, I'd also be tempted to retire. They would rather retreat to some quiet spot where they can hide their tracks and conceal their light, that's in quotation marks, He's, he's clearly sneering at it, and make themselves into winter fans and straw dogs. So even if there is a monk 
who has achieved a mastery of Zen through authentic practice, he will refuse to accept students no matter how fervently they beg him. Turning his back on their pleas, he is content to live a spare, comfortless existence off by himself, heedless of the privation, cold, or hunger may bring. After a lifetime of such carefree idleness, he finally wastes away inside a small hermitage in some remote corner of the land. How keenly it struck home to me. It is monks like these who are to blame. They are the ones responsible for undermining the Dharma banners. It is they who are destroying the true style and practices of the school. I had always detested a monk who would refuse to respond to a student's need, but for a long time I had just gone along without giving any more thought to the matter. Then recently a group of virtuous monks from various parts got together to do something about the problem. With no small amount of embarrassment, I must report that they came to me. They took me to task for neglecting my teaching responsibilities. The keen and eager monks hungering for a teacher were greatly encouraged and emboldened by this turn of events. They made their descent upon me. Now they come at me from all quarters like hordes of wasps rising from a broken nest, like mobs of ants swarming from an anthill to the attack. Some are like white-cheeked infants seeking their mother's breast. Some are like black-hearted ministers set on squeezing the populace dry. That sounds... That's, that hasn't changed in these past centuries. Black-hearted ministers set on squeezing the populace dry. I can't come up with an excuse to turn them away. I don't have the strength to keep pushing them off. I find myself pinched into a tight corner, all avenues of escape cut off. All right, uh, we'll pick up there uh, tomorrow and we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs>